0: There is a nonprofit international organization called ANAR, A N A R, and that stands for Aid to Children and Adolescents at Risk. And their purpose is to address the issues of child abuse around the world. Well, recently they came out with an ad campaign that uses a street sign that is very unique in how it communicates the message. I'm going to invite you to turn your attention to the screens to see this video that explains this ad campaign.
1: And our foundation manages an anonymous and confidential telephone line to attend children and teenagers under a risk situation. As a result of International Day Against Child Abuse, we launch a message for those ones suffering any kind of abuse. A message exclusively for them, hidden from adults' eyes. The outdoor uses a lenticular to assemble two images, the one aimed at adults and the other aimed at children. The lenticular allows you to see one image from one angle and a different image from another angle. From the average height by age, we can determine what part of each image will be seen by each person. In this way, we find an area only visible by children under 10. A message only for children and a warning for adults. It's
0: fascinating to me, taking the same message and communicating it two different ways, depending upon the audience. To the abuser, it's a message of warning. To the one being abused, it's a message of hope. Single message that cuts two ways. Well, in essence, when we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7, we see Jesus Christ doing that. He's bringing the single message of the kingdom of God, but a message that cuts two ways depending upon the hearer. You see, at the time of Christ, the people that were wealthy and empowered were considered to be the people that had the blessings of God resting upon them. That they had the favor of God on them, thus their wealth and their power. They were the elite ruling class. And you really couldn't work your way into it. That was very difficult to do to earn your way in. You had to be born into that class. And then the religious leaders called the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were a part of this elite ruling class. You might call them the haves. Well, they were looked down upon and condescended Upon everybody else. Because everybody else, you might say, were the have-nots. They were considered to be cursed of God. They were considered to be out from under the blessing of God. And that the kingdom of God wasn't for them. These were the misfits and the throwaways and the outcasts and the marginalized. So you had these two very distinct groups that the culture had defined. And then Jesus Christ comes along with this single kingdom message. And he really drops a cultural bomb in the midst of this. When he opens up his message with what we call the Beatitudes. And Pastor Jeremy talked about that a couple of weeks ago. But he basically says this. To the worst of the worst and the least of the least. And the outcast of the outcast. And the poor of the poor. And the marginalized of the marginalized. You are not beyond the reach of the blessing of the kingdom of God. And in essence he was saying with this one single message. To the have nots he was saying, you are not automatically cut out from the kingdom. But to the halves, he was saying, you are not automatically in the kingdom because of your status and where you are in the culture. He was basically saying, the kingdom of God is for everybody. The whosoever would, who would come to him as the king. Man, it was a cultural bombshell. But then he continues on in his message and he begins to get into the heart of his sermon And he drops another cultural bomb in the midst of this. In verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5, here is what Jesus Christ says. For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now... The Pharisees were considered the legends of the law. They were rock stars in the eyes of everybody else for their moral purity and their moral righteousness. And for Jesus Christ to say, the only way to get in the kingdom is to exceed their righteousness, he was basically saying to the Pharisees, he was saying, you think you're good enough in your self-righteousness to enter the kingdom, but you aren't. And to the other folks who thought they could even never measure up to be a Pharisee, He was saying, you think you'll never be able to measure up. Well, guess what? You're right. But the kingdom of God is still available to you. Single message cutting two different ways. To the abused, it was a message of hope. To the abuser, it was a message of warning. He was leveling the playing field because he was basically saying to both groups, you cannot earn your way into the kingdom of God. The only way in is to come by way of the grace of the king. Follow me. And he was basically saying to them. The kingdom of God is not about behavior modification. It's about heart transformation. Because what he was speaking to. Is that all of them. Whether they were a have or a have not. They all had the heart issue. That only the king could deal with. And the kingdom of God isn't about character. and about conduct per se. As much as it is our hearts being transformed and changed. In fact. He had a confrontation, Jesus Christ did, several years down the road into his life and ministry with the Pharisees confronting him this very issue. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 through 28, here's what he says. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are for the bones of the dead and everything unclean. He says, in the same way. On the outside, you appear to people as righteous. But on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You appear righteous. You got the right kind of conduct. But I know what's in your heart. And it's not righteous. In fact, you and I are basically made up of our words and our works. What we do, what we say. That's how we're made up. But the motivations of that come within the heart see people hear our words they see our actions but nobody really knows what the motivations and the reasons for that except within our heart and as good as we want to be and as much as we want to honor God and as righteous as we want to be guess what our hearts betray us because our hearts tend towards evil our hearts tend towards our own ways of doing things. and Jesus Christ is trying to say it's all about heart transformation. My son, Justin, when he was about four years old, he uh, uh, was enrolled in a Mother's Morning Out program. We were living in Orlando, Florida at the time. And uh, my wife went to pick him up one day uh, after uh, Mother's Morning Out. And the teacher took my wife aside and said, your son, Justin, was fighting. And, and, and we had to discipline him. And, and so Udella, when we got in the car, uh, said to Justin, said, um, son, what happened? He said, Mommy, this mean boy, he was pushing people and hitting people. And he came up to me and pushed me and he said, Mommy, something went flip-flip on the inside. So I kicked him. (laughs) And it's the flip-flip. It's the flip-flip. That the Lord wants to deal with. It's the thing in here that we can't master. That only the king can master. See. Jesus, in this Sermon on the Mount, he's inaugurating the prophecy and the promise that God gave to his people about what he wanted to do on the inside. And this is in Ezekiel. And it, and it says this. This is from the prophet Ezekiel. And he says to the people, I will give you a new heart. And I want to put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I want to put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. I'm going to do a thing on the inside because this is where it has to begin. Conduct matters within the kingdom. It does. But it begins in the heart. And Jesus, as we're going to see here in just a moment, Pastor Jeremy's going to show you. He challenges the conduct. But he challenges it to reveal the heart because it begins with heart transformation.
2: I'm sure you've seen in recent days the story on the news, it's been picked up, it's a local story, but it's been picked up by national news of the father who was supposed to drop his 22-month-old son off on his way to work. He got to work, had forgotten, and at the end of the day, comes back and gets in his car and starts to drive home and realizes that his child has been left in the car for about eight hours in the hot sun. Stories from eyewitnesses say that he he pulls over into the parking lot, I think of Cumberland Mall, jumps out, tries to resuscitate his child, and is unable to do so. And in the recent days, I've been amazed to watch the different reactions to that story. Some are calling for this man to be tried as a murderer. Some are calling for us to extend grace because who among us hasn't forgotten something? Who among us hasn't made a mistake? Who and so you have these two varying degrees of response. And really, it, it, it seems to me that both reactions are centered around this one central idea. Who are we to blame when something like this happens? Who, whose fault is it? Who's at fault? Because this 22 month old little boy has died, he's lost his life. And so somebody's got to be held accountable for that, right? Somebody's got to be responsible. Why, does the, why do those kind of stories kind of grab our heart? Because it's the loss of a life. It's the loss of the life of a child. And I think even the most anti-God, anti-faith person has some reaction to stories like that because it does involve a human life. It does involve the life of a child. It doesn't involve uh, someone that, that lost their life, maybe through even no fault of their own, like this story. And so when Jesus is standing in front of this crowd and he is teaching... And he's talking and he's dropping bombs. He he, he starts in, in this part of the message by, use, by talking about something that I, in my head, think that everybody's kind of nodding along to. This is what he says, beginning in verse 21. He says, you have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now, I feel like at this point, pausing for a second, I feel like everybody's kind of nodding along. Yeah, we've heard that. We agree with that. That's true nobody should murder that you know nobody murder me I mean like they're on board with that aspect of the teaching and he continues on to say this But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment Again anyone who says to a brother or sister raka and we'll talk about that in just a second is answerable to the court and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell So Jesus says you know you've heard it said don't murder And I think by and large The the overwhelming majority in that day and in this day would probably say, yeah, I would agree with that. That's something wrong. Let's not do that. That's kind of a moral absolute for most people, even those who are not faith-based people. But then he takes it and he begins to equate murder with something larger. Now, murder in itself is a big deal. And again, no matter where you land on the social sphere, the moral sphere, the idea of, of murder seems wrong because you're taking someone else's life. But on the spiritual side, the reason that that's a big deal is because you are devaluing or taking away the value of someone that is created in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter of the Bible says this in verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. This is the idea of amago day, the image of God. And so every human being that you encounter is created in the image of God. And so murder is then you attacking that image. It's you taking away or attacking the very image of God in someone. Whether you acknowledge that or not, we are all created in the image of God. And so murder, the physical act of murder, is you attacking that. And so when Jesus makes what seems to be, in the preliminary reading, this huge then leap to the aspect of murder being equal to anger... That seems like a huge leap, except that it's not. He he says, you know, if you call someone raka... Now, this is a phrase... Has anybody ever used that phrase? (laughs) Ever walk around going, raka? Anybody ever done that? No, just me? All right. Um, Raka is a phrase that would have been used, a word that would have been used in that day. It it was used by the Jews primarily to to kind of bring reproach on the person that they were using that phrase towards. It means, you senseless person, you fool, you present-day language here, you idiot, you stupid human, Right? So anybody want to say now that they've used some translation of the word raka? Yeah, yeah. Because what you're saying is there's something about you that's less valuable than me. I I might yell raka at you. I might call you an idiot. I might call you a fool. I might say you're stupid. If you've done something to take. My time, you frustrated me, you, you, you've you, done something that's kind of made me so angry, so frustrated. And so now what do I do? I lash out towards you. I have an angry outburst towards you. And in doing that, I call you by a name. Really what I'm doing is I'm taking you created in the image of God and I am changing your identity. Instead of saying you are created in the image of God, I'm now saying you're created in the image of some idiot who, who took my time, who, who cut me off in traffic. And I may not even know you, but you're an idiot. Raka. I'm going to start yelling that in traffic now, I think. <laughs> it just comes out not, with a growl, you know. But I'm saying – thank you, Sean, for that laugh. I- I'm saying there's something about you that's less valuable than the image of God. There's something about – so anger really is the same as murder. In murder, I'm attacking your God-given value and identity. With an angry outburst, I'm saying I am attacking your God-given value and identity. There's something about you. And, and why do we do this? Ever thought about that? What, you know, pastor's talking about this unseen part of our heart. You ever thought about the motivation for your angry outbursts? You ever thought about the motivation for the responses that you have? I mean, I don't know if you've ever done something and you get beyond that about 10 seconds or about 10 minutes and you go, why did I do that? man, I regret that. Why did I say that thing? Why did I do that thing? If you trace that back into that deep place in your heart, have you ever thought about why you responded that way? Probably deep down inside, there's some insecurity or some fear or some uncertainty or anxiety about the future. There's something about you that you respond in a certain way because there's this peace inside of you that you don't have control over. You don't have a handle on it. And many times, the reason that we have these angry outbursts towards other people is because we have to devalue them Mm -hmm. to find value for ourselves. Mm -hmm. We say, man, you... You did something that wasted my time or made me look like an idiot. Or you, And so I want you to know that I'm more valuable than you. I'm smarter than you. I'm more important than you. I'm more successful than you. And so we respond with this angry outburst. And what God is saying right here through Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, listen, doing that is the exact same thing as murder because it's identity theft. You are taking their identity. You're trying to label them. You ever had anybody label you? You ever had anybody call you a name? You ever had anybody say something about you? And man, it's stuck. Some of us, unfortunately, we still carry labels. Labels that were put on us as a teenager or as a child or as a young adult because someone screamed something at us. Someone lashed out at us and they labeled us. It may have not been Raka, but it may have been something else. And man, we wear that identity now, even to this day. And what Jesus is confronting, not necessarily is even you, but this morning it might be that you go, wow, I've never thought about that. Jesus is actually confronting, confronting those who screamed out and had the angry outburst and had anger in their hearts. He's confronting those people. But man, how many of us have been devalued? How many of us don't see ourselves or maybe we don't see others in the imago day, the image of God in which we were created? Because our lives, our value is far greater than what you can see, just as Pastor said. I mean, the the beatitudes at the beginning of this message is that he's looking across the landscape of the crowd there, and he's confronting what they've always used to give value, what they see with their eyes, the social status, the group of people that you run with. And Jesus is saying, "There's something far greater than that. It's not about your social standing. It's not about the things that you think that you do on the outside. It's actually about what's going on in the inside. The reflection." Of the nature of God. Now, Jesus does something again that seems so weird here. I mean, he could just preach a six week sermon on these last two verses and he could just hang right here and confront the anger because I don't know if you feel this way right now. If not, I'll keep saying it, but you should be convicted right now. You should have the Holy Spirit working in you, going, Wow, you've been angry. You are a murderer. Because that's what I've been doing all week long. Every time I get angry this week, I'm like, oh, wow, I just killed that guy. (laughs) right? Jesus does something else then. Now he takes that, and instead of kind of living six weeks there, he lives about 60 seconds right there. And then he changes to something else. This is what Jesus continues on to say in verse 27 and 28. He says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, don't get hung up on the his and her here. He's not just speaking to men in the original language. This is not even the aspect of men and women. This is the aspect of what lust really is. And so Jesus then transitions from murder and anger to adultery and lust. Anybody uncomfortable right now? Awesome. Right? That's awesome. So what Jesus does is he transitions to, to take the exact same subject matter and put it in a different context. Because here, here's what I would think. Maybe there's people nodding their head going, yeah, murder's wrong. We shouldn't do that. And maybe they would say, yeah, but I've never had that angry outburst. I've never really screamed raka at anybody. And then he says, okay, well, you've also heard it said don't commit adultery. I think there might be people that go, yeah, I've never done that either. He says, but I say anyone who's ever lusted after someone else is just as guilty as adultery. You know, Corey and I, my wife, we have the opportunity to kind of just walk with couples as they walk through the normal, you know, highs and lows of marriage sometimes. And unfortunately, we've been in experiences where couples have been really kind of wrestling with maybe the the, the fallout from adultery or maybe some precursors to that type of behavior and Sometimes one or the other partner will say something, you know, I never actually did something with someone else. I just had this this attraction or I just had this struggle or I was had this addiction to pornography. Or I had something else related to a lust. And, and Corey is very quick to bring into that conversation through a lot of wisdom in the heart of the other spouse. It's probably the exact same thing because there's been a betrayal. It's not just about what you do physically. It's is there something going on in your heart or in your mind that says I have to look outside of this relationship to find worth, to find value, to find fulfillment, to find satisfaction in my life. And the reason that that's important, just like looking at the imago Day of the reflection of who you are as an image of God, the reason that's important is found in Ephesians chapter 5. Let's look at this. Ephesians chapter 5 says this. You've heard this probably beginning in verse 22. As I have said so many times from this stage and others just like it, if you are married in this room, you have to understand one incredible principle. Your marriage is about more than just you and your spouse. Just like you being created in the image of God carries a greater value than just you as a person on the earth, your marriage is a representation of this incredible eternal relationship of Jesus Christ and the church, His bride And we can see that going back even to the Old Testament. In the book of Ezekiel, I know you're you're thrilled today that we've had two Ezekiel references. But in the book of Ezekiel chapter 6, this is what it says. Then in the nations where they have been carried captive, those who escape will remember me. This is the prophet talking. How I have been grieved by their adulterous heart. God speaking through the prophet says how I have been grieved by their adulterous hearts, which have turned away from me and by their eyes, which have lusted after their idols. God, through the prophet Ezekiel, is saying about a people... Listen, they're adulterous because they don't find their ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction in me. They're lusting after other objects of worship and affection. This is not just your marriage. This is not just a a behavior or an addiction. This is a spiritual issue. And so Jesus Christ is saying, listen, you've heard it said don't commit adultery. Don't commit the physical act of adultery. I'm telling you there is a deeper rooted issue in your heart that says not only do you potentially have struggles or issues in your own value, the Imago day of who you are, and maybe in that of others, but in the context of relationship in which it reflects my son, Jesus Christ, and his bride, there's something that you're having to do to look outside of that to find fulfillment, to see not just your role in an eternal screenplay, but to say all that exists here is an unsatisfying earthly relationship. Jesus says, no, there's there's more to it than that. You have to look at the spouse that you have. You have to look at other individuals, whether they're your spouse or not, and understand that they are not an object for you to find some fulfillment in you. They're not just an object of desire. They are created in the image of God. When you look at that person and you lust after them, you're saying, I don't see you as a Mago day. I see you as something that satisfies me. I, I use you conditionally so that at the end of this, I feel better about myself. I feel better at coming out of this moment. No, every part of this, murder, adultery, anger, lust, is how do I view you? How do I view the individuals that I come in contact with? Do I view them through the lens of Imago Day? And then as if Jesus wanted to just throw the whole thing into a big old tizzy, right? Another Southern word. I used another one a couple weeks ago. It throws into a tizzy. This is what it says in verse 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. We will not be doing that today. (laughs) That's a different church. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go into hell. Now, that might seem a little bit strong. <laughs> might seem a little. A little, <laughs> right? But I think as I read through this, now with the understanding of Imago Day, who I am, the image of God, who you are in the image of God, I think what Pastor started with just a little while ago is really where Jesus was ending this portion of the message before he transitioned to something else. I think he was saying, listen, You are so concerned with what you see on the external. You're so concerned with how things appear and who's got all their stuff together. And you're so concerned with who's in this social status and who's in that social status. Who's the Pharisee of the month over here? Who's the Sadducee? Who's the religious leader? You're so concerned with who's blessed and who's not blessed. And I'm telling you that there's something more important going on. It's what's going on inside of you. Something going on in your heart. Your heart is a body part. It's it's part of your body for most of us in the room. And I think Jesus then uses an external equivalent to show us something really valuable. He said, it would be better for you to wear an eye patch and to have a nub, but have a dirty heart, right? Because what I'm saying is I want you to clean the inside of you and don't worry about the external. I don't think he's being literal here. I don't think he's really wanting you to gouge your eye out. I don't think he's really wanting you to cut your hand off. I think he's wanting you to deal with the internal and quit worrying about the superficial external things going on in your life. Am I the Imago Dei? Am I a reflection of the very image of God? And do I treat others as if they too are created in the image of God?
0: I remember when I was 16 years old, And I was studying for the driver's license exam here in Georgia. And man, I took the driver's license manual and I studied it backwards and forwards. Man, I knew that thing. When I got in the car to drive with my learner's license, man, I always worked on putting my seatbelt on first and adjusting all of the mirrors before I ever touched the steering wheel or touched the ignition. Man, I worked hard on making sure I got my blinker on. I came to a full stop at every stop sign. We practiced and practiced and practiced parallel parking until I could do that in my sleep. And it came the morning of the exam. And off I went with my mom to, to, the, to the examination place before it ever opened. I was standing at the front door when they opened the door. Took the, the uh, uh, written exam, nailed it, man. I nailed that sucker. Got into the car and did the driving portion, and man, it was going great. I was got the blinker on, stopping at every stoplight. I was doing everything. Man, I'm out on the road, and it's going awesome. And the next thing I know, we are back in the parking lot of the examination building, and I'm waiting for the parallel parking part, and I'm pulling to the the, uh, uh, parking lot, and the examiner sitting beside me says, Okay, your exam's over. Just pull up here in this parking place in front of the building. I didn't even have to do The parallel parking, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, there is a God, there is a God, I don't have to do this. And so I just had to pull up into this normal, regular parking place, which I hadn't even practiced doing because I could do that. And I pulled up there and I was so crooked. I wasn't even remotely within the lines of this parking space. And my mother standing there on the parking on the on the sidewalk and sees me. She just rolls her eyes and turns her back on me and walks away. Mom, it was so bad, my own mother turned her back on me. And I'm sitting there thinking, I've just failed. I've failed. And the examiner looks at me and says, back it up, straighten it out, and get it in here right. And I'm thinking, okay, and I am just shaking, and I back it up, and I, I get it in there. And I'm still waiting for her to say, i failed. We get out of the car, we go inside, and she passes me. After everything I had done right, I only passed by the grace of the examiner. You see, even though I did all these other things right, I was still utterly dependent upon the grace of the examiner. See, maybe I don't deal with a lust issue. Maybe that's not a temptation for you. Maybe the anger thing, that's, that's not a real issue for you. But I think Jesus was saying more than just speaking to those specific things, though, how important are they? How important are our relationships, especially in marriage? I mean, two vital parts of the human existence. It wasn't just coincidence, Jesus was talking about, but I think he's saying something higher. I think he's saying, even though you may be saying, you know what, I, don't, I really don't do that, and I really don't do this, All I do is this. I think what Jesus is saying... You still got to give... The only thing that you do in your mind to me. It it still leaves you falling short of the goal. See... Just because I might do some certain things right... That does not justify or rationalize or excuse... What I don't do right. And what I don't do right. Doesn't nullify me. From the grace. Of Jesus Christ. See the bottom line is this. There is never a time. That I'm not totally. Utterly dependent. Upon the grace. Of Jesus Christ. Because here's the deal. What I got to understand. Is it some of this other stuff I may not deal with? But i got to understand, I'm fully capable of messing it up. See, I'm fully capable of running a stop sign. I'm fully capable of not putting on my seatbelt. I'm fully capable of not doing those things. Though those things are normally not issues for me. But I'm still fully capable of messing those up. i got to recognize, I don't care how long I've been in church or for how little I've been in church. I don't care if I was raised in church or not raised in church. Bottom line is... I am never at a place that I'm not utterly dependent upon the grace of Jesus Christ. I think that's what he's trying to tell us. Trying to tell them. See, I'm fully capable of every sin in the book. Fully capable. And I got to see that. Because here's what happens. Mark Walker, who's been walking with Jesus Christ at least 40 years. I'm as in need of much grace now as I was then. And I'm as in need of much grace as the worst sinner that doesn't walk with Christ. I need as much grace as he or she does. See, if I come to the place... But I start saying, you know what, everything I do right, that gives me the right to not really have to worry about some of the other stuff that's going on in my heart. Let me tell you what that does to me, Mark Walker. When I don't live under the grace of God, I begin to start creating a group of people outside of my life of haves and have nots. I thank God I'm not like them. I thank God I don't do what they do. And I begin to categorize people. But when I can find myself always recognizing that I'm as in need as much grace as the next person. Then what I begin to do is I begin to look at them through the eyes of that grace. I may not do the stuff they do. But my heart is fully capable of it. And there's other stuff that I do. What might be some of the attitudes and things in our own hearts we have towards other people? Even our spouses. (laughs) It may not be adultery. It may not be lust. It may not be this rock of anger. But what might be in there? I see. only but by your grace. See, Jesus isn't saying this to them and to us. To put us in condemnation and constant guilt. He's saying it to put us in a spirit of conviction and I believe of thanksgiving to say, hey, if not for you, I would be or have nothing. I am totally dependent upon you. I'm going to invite you to stand if you would, please. bow your head and close your eyes a moment I just some of you may be in here and you're thinking you know what I recognize that on my own and my own efforts and my own works I man I do a lot of things well but there are certain stuff when I look at my own heart man I'm I know there's stuff that the Lord still needs to do and maybe you're here and you're going you know I've never made a decision to follow Christ. I've always tried to think I had to be good enough. I never felt like I was ever good enough. But maybe today you're hearing him say, Look, come to me. Let me do the work in you. Come to me. Maybe you simply say today, Okay, I'm going to place myself in the total grace that you have for me. Maybe you're in here. you got some issues. Than your marriage, issues with some people in your workplace maybe there's some anger stuff you're having to deal with about certain types of people that you come in contact with or a particular person who somehow hurts you it's not necessarily about how we can just kind of bite our lips and not say what we'd like to say, it's more about Lord help me search the motives as to why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling I just want to take a moment to pray for all of us. Because I think we would all be honest and say, just based on these things that we see Jesus saying in this sermon, man, there's a lot of stuff left for Him to work on in all of us. But only by Your grace. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus for every one of us in this room. God, help us to see that there's never anything we can do that's good enough. Only because we continue to fall short in so many other ways, and so many other areas. Father, I just pray right now you help us just to have this great sense of gratitude. This great sense of thanksgiving. That if it weren't for you and your grace towards us, where would we be and what could we do? How could our marriages be strong? How could our relationships really have health? Father, I pray right now for marriages in this room and other relationships. I pray for healing, God. I pray for your grace to saturate us all. I pray, Father, that we wouldn't so be looking at what we might do good that we don't see the things that you need to do in our hearts as well as that we don't so focus on the things that keep us falling short so that we beat ourselves up. But, God, we just bring it all to you. Thank you for what you do to keep us strong. And thank you for what you do when we're weak. We need you, God. We need you. There is never a time we don't need your grace and your mercy. God, I just pray for those in this room maybe, maybe struggling with some type of lustful activity, maybe, maybe some pornographic thing that is in their lives. Help all of us, God. Help all of us help all of us go to the deep root of our hearts that would motivate us to feel like we need some type of pleasure beyond what you've given to us in a spouse God I thank you I thank you that you didn't just cut us loose but you came and you brought us unto yourself So today, we acknowledge you are truly king of all that we are. For your praise and glory and your honor, in Jesus' name, amen and amen.